morning, good morning, good morning. We are talking about how Jesus Christ redefines life since his birth and death and resurrection. So I'm going to stick with two points today. The first one is Jesus redefines power. And while I'm thinking about it, I want to make a quick announcement, a quick plug, that next month, all four Sundays, we will be talking about addictions, the, the, all, all things concerning addiction. So if you want to make sure you know when to be here, or if you have someone that you know needs to be here, um, that's all next month. So there we go. So read Jesus redefines power. Now let me give you just four minutes of background, because if we don't understand the culture, that Jesus was born into, if we don't understand the history, we will miss the absolutely revolutionary thing that Jesus did when he redefined power. About 300 years before Jesus was born, Alexander, we learn from our history books, Alexander the Great, then at, at the, by the age of 30, had conquered all of what was then known of the world. And he became the personification of greatness. He was now the standard for what greatness meant for power. And it came through um, conquering kingdoms and building empires. And the Greeks rose to such fame and power that when the Romans came, they said, that's, that's the model we want. And so every Roman Caesar from then on patterned their rule and their reign after Alexander the Great. So this is the world that Jesus was born into. 50 years before he was born, Roman, the Romans conquered Israel and all the surrounding areas. And Herod the Great was installed as the ruler over that land. So Jesus was born into a conquered kingdom. Now Israel was used to being uh, an enslaved nation. Uh, much of it was their own decisions, but once again, they were an enslaved people, and they knew their history, they knew their Torah, and they knew that the Bible promised that there would be a deliverer, there would be someone that would come, their Messiah, who would come and deliver Israel from their oppression, and the Romans were um, especially cruel oppressors. They, their lights were, were free, they were not they had some measure of freedom, but if someone's telling you what to do and telling you what you can't do, no matter how free they tell you you are, you know you're not really free. So the Israelites, they were crying out to God for a deliverer. They wanted their Alexander. This is who they wanted. This is what they envisioned that, Jesus, that God would do for their nation. They were tired of being oppressed. And so they believed that when the Messiah came, the deliverer came, he would come with what the world considers greatness, with the power to overthrow kingdoms, with the power to uproot nationalities and nations. That's what they were looking for. They wanted blood. But as we know now, because we know the rest of the story, Jesus didn't come to wage that kind of war. He wasn't fighting an enemy that could be seen. He was fighting the battle for eternity. He was fighting the battle so that I could not be dead in my sins. I could live eternally with him. That's the battle he was fighting. 
Now, what I love about Jesus is that all the things that they thought meant power to them, what they considered great, what they considered powerful, Jesus could have done all of that. He had the power to wage war. He had all of the angelic hosts at his beck and call. He could have called the angels. He had demons fleeing. He had power over all of creation. He had the power they so desperately wanted, but he didn't come to fight that war. And I love that. He came to fight a battle that I couldn't win today, that the Israelites couldn't win then. He came to fight a battle that was for my soul, to set me free from me. Because I tell you, long after the oppressor leaves, the oppressor that's in your life, the person that you believe is dealing cruelly with you, long after they're gone, long after the circumstance that you are struggling with and is deeply troubling to you, long after that's gone, Jesus knew we would still have the condition of our soul. We would still be battling hatred for that person, jealousy for that person, murderous thoughts for that person. And so Jesus, even though he knew what they wanted was an Alexander, they wanted blood, God said, I'll shed blood. The blood that needs to be shed, I will shed that blood for you. This is the battle that I want to win for you. This is what power is. It's when you know you can do whatever you want and you choose to walk in humility. You choose to sacrifice for someone else. You make the choice that your actions are gonna benefit and bless and not curse and conquer and divide and oppress and enslave. I, I, it's hard to remember and to think that Jesus was born into an enslaved society. He wasn't free. We, we, we have the idea since he was Jesus and he was God that he was free. His people were not free. So he came, the war he came to fight was a different war than what the Israelites imagined. So they rejected him as we know. So I gave you some of that history so that you would see that when we read what Jesus tells the people that came to hear him, You'll, be, you'll understand the amazement that they felt when they heard Jesus' words. Because this, this isn't what they wanted to hear. They had had centuries of people oppressing them and beating them and enslaving them. And they wanted to hear, I want blood. I'll conquer the Romans. I will send the Romans out. But Jesus says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. If anyone threatens to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation force troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles instead. These were not hypothetical situations that Jesus came up with. He didn't just think, oh, I'll, I'll say 
let him slap the other cheek. Let him take. These were situations that the Israelites dealt with on a daily basis. These were daily challenges. In fact, one of the things that the Roman soldiers would do when they would see a young Israelite is they would go up in order to provoke a fight. They would go up and slap them across the face. This happened daily. And Jesus is saying, the power I'm giving you, you have the power to choose how you're going to respond. You have to choose who you're going to become. No one can take that power from you. Your character is formed by how you respond to these cruelties and these acts of violence. You alone. Today, where you're sitting, you might think, I, I talk about an oppressor, my boss, you, you wouldn't believe. Or my husband. You just don't know you're not married to him. Or my wife. You alone have the choice. You can decide, I'm going to turn the other cheek. You can decide, I'm going to give him my coat as well. He's saying, you have power. And that power is the freedom to choose. We hear all about it from the Holocaust survivors, some of their stories. Pastor Crystal said it a couple weeks ago about Bonhoeffer we all know about Corey Ten Boom. They, their power wasn't in their circumstance because they were all imprisoned or POWs. But their power was in their choice of how they were going to respond to their oppressors. And we have that same choice today. That same way to look at what's happening to us, the circumstances that happen to us. So if you had more authority and more power than you have right now. Think about your power and authority expanding your little personal kingdom, your family's kingdom expanding. We pray and pray and pray for God to pull up our tent pegs and widen our tent pegs. But God is looking at our heart. We see what he did with all power. Listen to this verse. This verse just cuts me. It cuts me. Because the only person alive that had, has ever had absolute power was Jesus Christ when he walked on this earth. He's the only one. I know we hear the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely. But no, let's not fool ourselves. No human being has absolute power. But God does, and Jesus did. So Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things. That's, that's, that's nature, that's commanding the oceans, that's the command over disease and sickness. Soon it would be death was under his power. Jesus knew, I have absolute power. So what, is this, what does God show us about redefining what we know as power, that greatness is power, and that conquest is power, and that accumulating more is power, and that oppressing is power? What is God Almighty, who truly is the only one that has absolute power, what does he do? What is he showing us that power is? He had come from God. He was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash 
his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is what God does with absolute power. The humbleness, the humility. We say, let's get more, let's, let's conquer, let's go. But God puts a towel around his waist. He bends over and he washes your dirty feet and my dirty feet. Power in God's economy is humility. Power is grace. Power is forgiveness. Power is serving your brothers and sisters. That's what God demonstrated on the cross when he poured out his life. This is true power. This is power redefined. The second thing we'll talk about very, very briefly is Jesus redefines family. I love, love this. I love this verse. This is one of my all-time favorite verses in the Bible, apart from all the salvation ones, of course, because you've got to love those the best, right? Can't not love those. But this is one of my favorite. Your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you, wanting to see you. And Jesus replied, this is just typical Jesus. He always says the thing you're not expecting. My mother and my brothers are those who practice, who hear God's word and put it into practice. I love that. See, Jewish, Jesus came from a Jewish culture. You could only be a Jew by being born a Jew, having uh, Jewish blood. And that's the only way that you could, you could be a part of that community, a part of that family. But now Jesus is changing everything. He's redefining the definition of what family is. He's saying, if you hear the word of God, if you put the word of God into practice, you are my sister. And you are my brother. And I love that because my family and your family, if you're a believer this morning, includes people from every race, every tongue, every tribe, every nationality. And we will all be together in heaven, worshiping God. He redefines it. He says, family's not just the blood that's going through your veins. It's not who your, your father on earth is or your mother. It's who is hearing my word? Who is obeying my word? Who is practicing my word? You are my family. You are my family. Hallelujah. We are not created to live outside a family. We're not. We are created for community. We are created to be together. And I know, I know that that's hard. It's hard to be in your biological family and it's hard to be in the family of God because you know what? There's people that are just like you and there's people that are just like me. And sometimes, more often than not, it's uncomfortable. I, me personally, I'm in three groups, three community groups, small groups. I'll be using that word interchangeably the first one's on Tuesday morning and we have been a part of that group for 20 years, 20 plus. And we're in all seasons. All of us ladies are in all different seasons of life. And those women have, have, have held me. Those women have supported me. Those women have gone to war with me. Those women have cried with me. And we're all different temperaments. We're not the same. We all have our little areas where we don't, don't poke them there. And that's Okay. Because part of growing together and being in a community is that we, God matures us 
through community. I'm not getting mature by sitting at home by myself. I'm getting older, but I'm not maturing. God uses the body of Christ and small groups and specifically, communities specifically, so that you can be rooted and grounded in love. Um, tumbleweeds, I always like to see tumbleweeds when you see like a Western, you see a tumbleweed rolling by. But tumbleweeds, nobody wants a garden full of tumbleweeds. They're not gonna be rooted and grounded in love. We need to be planted. And then we need the wind to come, the rain to come, all those things to get us so that our roots grow, grow deep. But I get it. Community is messy. I get it. I, I understand. For every horror story you have, I have a horror story too. Because there are people that are a lot like me there, and it's like, oh. But that's, but that's me, and I, I don't like me when I see me coming from you. It doesn't look the same. We all have baggage. So I get it. I get it. It's uncomfortable. And for those edges to get rubbed off, that God's been trying to rub off of you for all of your single days and all of your days of wandering like a tumbleweed, you're going to get them rubbed off in a small group. And that's a good thing. Don't you want to mature? Don't you want to grow up in God? I really do. I really do. And if it means I have to sit in a room full of women that are telling me whatever that I need to hear, I'll do it. I'm also in a, we're also, Pastor Mark and I are also in a Wednesday night group. And it's people, couples that are in the same age bracket. The same, because the Tuesday morning, we're everywhere. We're all over the map. But in this group, we're, we're all, couples of a certain age that are together. And we have fought together and loved together, buried parents together, buried siblings together but I get it community is messy and I get it people get kind of close and all up in your business and sometimes people are like I don't think that's right that doesn't seem right that's a little too mm." and then the cult word gets thrown around when Jesus died specifically for us to become a family a big messy loud loving family The people look from the outside and go, what is the matter with those people? But I want to be with them. I want to be one of them. Listen, let me tell you something. Closeness isn't codependence. It's not. It's not. And if you are not raised in a family that's all up in each other's business and loving each other and allowing each other to make mistakes and loving them through mistakes, they love you through your mistakes, then you don't know what closeness is. You don't know what family is, but I know where you can find out what family is. And that's here in the body of Christ. It is a safe place. It is. You might not feel like it because everybody's going to know your business. But listen, on judgment day, everyone's going to know your business anyway. Let's take care of it before then. Let's let two or three friends know about it long before I'm standing before the throne of God. I get it. I get it. Community, small groups are close. And I make no apology for that because that's Jesus was close with his disciples. He wasn't keeping them at a respectful distance. He wasn't. They were laying their head on his chest and he was cooking them fish. I get it. Community's close. But people yearn for that. 
They long for that, even though they kind of like, no, I don't want it. Yes, I do. No, I don't want it. But I really, really do. But some of us are so broken that we, that we think an argument or, or a disagreement or whatever is going to end everything. It's not. You don't think the disciples, you don't think they were having all kinds of arguments and discussions? They were. Okay. One quick story and then I'll, then I'll end. Okay. This ought to make you feel good about your small group. Let me just say that, okay? For those of y'all that run small groups, this ought to make you feel good. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house was, where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. Now, don't you just, that's the dream small group, right? Okay, see? The room is packed. You got your thing, your notes are all ready. You got a guest speaker coming. It's past the dream small group right here. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Don't you wish you'd have heard those four men talking? You know, you, there's always one complainer in the group. How far did you say this was? I mean, we don't know how far they went, but you know it was the distance. You know they were sweating like crazy. No deodorant. It must have, they must have been a hot mess trying to get their friend, their small group person, to where there could be healing. Just think about it for a second. They're dragging, pushing, straining, pulling, trying to get this guy. I don't know how much he weighed, but it took four of them to even accomplish it. And they get to the house and like, crap, didn't anybody, why didn't somebody get the memo? We can't even get... We can't even get inside. Now, a woman probably would have said, well, let's just wait till it's over. Let them come outside and then we'll talk to the master. But no, these four geniuses, I love it. I love them, I love them. We need men like this and women like this in our groups. <laughs> oh, that almost scared me, Mr. Condon. I was like, what? Keep, yes, keep shouting while I'm preaching. Okay, we'll finish up with this. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. You think your group leaves a mess behind when they go home and the coffee cup is on the table. These people, don't they? Were they raised in a barn? Why don't they put their cups in the sink? You think your group is messy. These men, dadgum, destroyed the integrity structure of this guy's house. Can you just pick, just pick, just take one second. This story is absurd and we read it like it's, oh, I'm having coffee with my donut. This is absurd, this is crazy. They are trying to push this guy, pull this guy up to the top of the house. They've cut a hole in the roof, clawed it with their hands and dumped this guy off in front of you. I just, that's crazy. That's crazy. Casey, until we're doing this in our small groups, we don't have a good small group. We gotta be doing this. It was a mess. It was a mess. It was a hot mess. That's all you can say about it. You don't know what the house group leader was saying. They're probably thinking, oh my God. Okay. But thank God for those four men. Because what does Jesus say? They lowered the man on the mat, right down, plunk right in front of Jesus, seeing their what? Seeing their faith. Man, it didn't matter. The guy's house was torn up. There was straw and dirt and mud everywhere. Sweat pouring down on everybody. Didn't matter. Because of their faith, those four guys, that small group, they had a mission. 
They knew if they could get their friend in front of Jesus, he would be healed. And Jesus is like, man, your, your, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know if the paralyzed guy was probably thinking, well, this isn't quite what I was expecting. And then, of course, the Pharisees got their nose out of joint again. Like, who is he to say he can? And so God's like, Jesus is like, okay, stand up. You're healed all the way. So I love it. I love it. But here's my question to you as I end. Here's my question. You know, first a statement, then a question. You know, every time that formerly paralyzed man told his story, those four men were mentioned. Yes, yes, of course, Jesus was mentioned. But it was the faith of those four men. So you know their names got mentioned. So my question to you is this morning, who cannot tell their story of faith without mentioning your name? Were you one of the four? Who have you been one of the four for? Who have you sweated and grunted and heaved and dug and clawed so that this person could find Jesus, so this person could get healed, so that this person could come to a revelation of who God is? Who can't tell their story without mentioning you? That's my question. Would you stand with me, please? I'm actually going to have Pastor Peter come out and close in prayer. But I do want you to think about if you have an oppressor in your life, a circumstance that is oppressing you, that has got you in bondage, you have a choice. You have a choice. Thank you. And you have to forgive. Can you, get, can you be a part of a small group? Can you join a community that will just tick you off and make you happy all at the same time? Can you do that? Pastor Peter. We've certainly got a few holes in our roof. Makes me wonder if we've had that experience before. It's good stuff. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do want to be closer to you, but we also recognize you refuse to show yourself completely by yourself. You've chosen to show yourself through the body, through the body of Christ. You've shown yourself through the Son. You show yourself through the Word of God. You show yourself through the Spirit that speaks to us, which is the one that, you, that, that, that Jesus sent to us. But you also show yourself to us through one another. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us for not allowing ourselves to see you through other people, for not allowing ourselves to receive you we're sorry, Father, for constantly asking for stuff, but refusing to receive it the way that you want to give it to us. And so we are committed to saying we will receive every good gift you want to give to us because you're a good father and we want to be the best sons and daughters we can be. So we pray you would give us a new vision, a new tenacity, a new sight to see where you're moving in our lives through other people. Help us to be invested in them as you have been invested in us. We ask this in your precious son's name. And all God's people said, amen. <laughs>